take first watch. Hello, welcome to an all new episode of the First Watch podcast, special holiday episode. And here to help me celebrate is Zach on loan from the Other Film Guys podcast. Zach, how are you? I am doing great. I'm glad to be here talking about this movie that we will be talking about with you. That's right. And the movie in question is Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza, which is dropping nationwide on Christmas. But you and I got to see it a little bit early thanks to some preview screenings. Yes, I was super glad because you and anybody else who knows me knows that I was very much anticipating seeing this movie. So much so, I think when we originally saw the announcement, one of the cities on the list was Dallas, Texas, where I live, which was screening it in 70 millimeter. And you, who live in Houston, four hours away, <laughs> copped a ticket immediately. Yes. <laughs> like as soon as the like listing for the preview screens dropped, I bought the ticket because. Houston was not originally listed as one of the preview screenings. It was, I guess they just left it up to the theater that they were playing it at to give that announcement or something. So yeah, I bought tickets to go drive four hours to go see it one way, mind you, to Dallas so I could see it. I got two tickets, found out later that I also grabbed the seats that would have been right next to you, uh, yeah, which was that's pretty, what a coincidence. Pretty, uh, yeah. <laughs> and then I found out about the Houston screening and as much as I do, uh, or as much as I was anticipating seeing this movie, if I didn't have to drive four hours to go see it, I wasn't going to. <laughs> I appreciate the dedication, though. And I know that you, you know, beyond just having bought these tickets, you're going to make the trip up to Dallas here in January. And that's yes. a nice little podcast tease for us because we're going to get together and we're going to see There Will Be Blood at the Texas Theater. And then yes. we're going to get to have a conversation about that movie. Uh, have you ever seen excited. that in theaters before? No, I have not. The only Paul Thomas Anderson movies that I've seen in theaters are Licorice Pizza and Phantom Thread. So when you saw Licorice Pizza, did you get to see that in 3570 or was that screened in digital for you guys? It was unfortunately screened just in digital. We don't have any film projectors in Houston anymore. I found out that we used to, but I have never even been able to experience that glorious, glorious film projection. It's crazy to me to think that Houston's like the fourth most populous city, populated city in America. And there's just no spot in town that projects on reels. When yeah. I saw Licorice Pizza, I was really surprised because they screened it at an AMC in the mall. And I just, I can't remember any other time having seen anything in that particular theater projected before. So I didn't get a chance to look into it, but I'm curious if that was provided by United Artists or what the situation was there. And also curious how many spots in town will be playing it in 35 and 70 millimeter once it kind of drops nationwide. It's a cool experience, although I somewhat feel like just the way that this is shot, Licorice Pizza, is a really beautiful movie. So even yeah. if you're watching it digitally projected, it's you kind of get the richness of the way that the film is lit. So I think the second film in a row where Paul Thomas Anderson has acted as his own cinematographer after 2017 Phantom Thread, and it's another really, really, really strong effort on that front. And I think that's as good of a place to start as any, because it is a film that is being shown in 35 and 70 millimeter. Obviously, that's something that the studio, that Paul, they want to kind of emphasize the way that this film looks and getting people into theaters is an important part of that. 
Yeah, definitely. I, I think they ultimately want as many people to be able to see it. And I know that Paul Thomas Anderson, he has made a great effort to be able to show the film like on film because, I mean, I can't speak for personal experience, but it's supposed to be the best way to watch a movie that was shot on film because it's film to film instead of film then being transferred over to a digital uh, conversion. So I envy everybody who got to go to those 70 millimeter or 35 millimeter screenings. Very much so. You know what you notice when you see a movie projected on reels, whether it's 70 or 35 old new, are any sort of scenes where you have like a really strong light source emanating, you get that sense of it kind of projecting through the celluloid. There's a particular moment where Tom Waits' character is in the restaurant and sort of appears in a cloud of smoke and there's light that's sort of reflecting through the smoke. And it's, that's a beautiful shot. And that's the type of thing where you see it in 70. And it's a really striking image. First movie I've seen in 70 millimeters since 2015, Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. I got a chance oh, to nice. see that. And that's, I mean, that's a movie where obviously you want the scale as big as possible, those big Western yeah. vistas. So licorice pizza, why don't you take it away? What were your expectations of it? And how did it deliver on those? I mean, I, I knew pretty much up front that I remember the day that the, I think the trailer launched, I was, I was at work and I had to take a break. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to see what, what it was in for. Cause at that point, all we knew really was like the basic cast that it was going to follow like a child actor. And it was going to be sort of like a romantic uh, venture. Uh, we knew that, you know, Alana Heim was going to be in it. Cooper Hoffman was going to be in it. Uh, Bradley Cooper, uh, Benny Safdie, um, you know, all those, all those big names that we actually see in the movie. We, that's pretty much all we knew at that point. And then the trailer drops and you're like, okay, this is like a coming of age romance movie. I don't remember. I, I might need to rewatch the trailer, but I don't think it gives off the, the age dynamic that is, has been of large conversation. I think part of that is due to Cooper Hoffman who looks, if you've ever seen the movie, this is such a strange comparison. If you've ever seen the movie, catch me if you can. The Leonardo DiCaprio character has this kind of boyish charm. Well, he's young, but people think that he's an adult. He can kind of pass as like a really young looking 20 year old. And in the same way as that character is kind of crafty and manipulative, the Cooper Hoffman character in this is a little hustler. He's, you know, he's wheeling and dealing. He's got all these different high minded schemes, one of which is to marry the Alana Heim character. from the first moment that he yeah. sees her. He's, I feel like he's kind of a classic Paul Thomas Anderson character who just has like this unbridled sense of ambition, but it's yes. really sweet and wholesome in this case. And it really fits with his physical appearance and the nature of the character that he is a 15 year old that seems, I wouldn't even call him precocious. You know, I would work for the guy. And he's, he's a teenager, you know, and that's kind of the personality of the character. Yeah. And in a similar way, the Alana Heim character is this pugnacious, argumentative, flinty, just, you know, will pick a fight with anybody any fucking time. And that's her character. <laughs> and so she's like 25, but she kind of scans as like 18 to 21. And so they kind of feel yeah. like emotionally. She just hasn't grown up. Match. She hasn't been able to find her place. And I think Cooper knows his place. And so like they're, they're at opposite points. And so that like is what brings them closer together. I, I, I think I said in my review that he reminds me of if Eddie from Ed, Ed and Eddie grew up and was successful. Eddie being the main one. Uh, yeah. The, the, one who's, yeah. the one who's always scheming around. <laughs> the leader. Yeah. 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 
and he's got like this little crew of like the other kids in the neighborhood that like yeah, his little cronies <laughs> there's a great moment where they're gassing up the moving van <laughs> they've got the little <laughs> gas canister and in the silhouette <laughs> yes <Yeah. laughs> i really like the sense that cooper and his friend group they feel like actual teenagers. They don't feel like movie characters. One of the things that I think works really, really well here, the way that this film is written is that it's kind of, I would say, vignettish. It's a lot of different little segments that don't necessarily connect together into one big series of plot events. There is something happening that connects all these things. However, in a general way, you're just kind of looking almost through the lens of memory into somebody's childhood, in a sense. Yeah, And in that way, you have this really, even with background characters, this really detailed sense of, yeah, that's a bunch of teenage kids hanging out over there. And I like that about it. It helps the period feel real. It helps the memory feel not like an aesthetic thing that the movie chose to do, but an actual living, breathing community of people. To get back to like sort of your question of like how it also like met up with my expectations. Um, I think we both sort of viewed this a little differently. Um, I, I mean, I, I really like this movie. It's in my top five of the year, but I don't believe it is so for you. I believe you gave it like a three and a half on Letterboxd, I mm-hmm. want to say. Well, you know, like mar- largely noting that like the script is a little weak at some points. Quickly on just my opinion on this movie. I love Paul Thomas Anderson. He's one of my favorite filmmakers, just as he is one of yours. I have a yes. really high standard. So I want to really quickly, if we rewound the clock back to the year 2012, a younger me. I saw The Master, and if I had had Letterboxd back then, I would have three and a half starred The Master based on how I felt about it. And that's a movie that over time really grew in my estimation. And I think that that's something that may be at play here. I had definitely really high expectations of my enjoyment of this movie of Phantom Thread's my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson film. Me like too. I, and I, so for me, this, this is his first film since that one. I just, I didn't have like nuclear expectations of it by any by any stretch of the imagination but when i say that it's weak a weak piece of writing i just mean by comparison to that that's what i'm comparing it to i think that it is by his almost unreachable standards it feels like a nice little shaggy vibes movie and i think that that's just it's something that i enjoy the movie reminds me I think obviously a great deal of his own Boogie Nights. It reminds me of American Graffiti. And maybe the most apt comparison would be Dazed and Confused because that's another movie that just kind of has a big cast of characters and you move from unrelated event to unrelated event. But I think that if I can quickly compare what separates the writing of that film from this film is that in Dazed and Confused, the compressed time period leads to a thing where that plot, such as it is, is built around these loose events happening, but characters kind of keep meeting up because they're in this one localized place in this one localized time. Whereas with Licorice Pizza, it's pretty content to just sort of throw things at you in a random fashion. And it's cool. I think that what that leads to is a type of film where it succeeds or does not succeed based on the strength of the scene-by-scene enjoyment or the scene-by-scene quality. And I think that that's quite strong because he's a great director 
and because it's a charming cast of characters. But there are multiple subplots. There are multiple scenes that either just drag on a bit or else I don't find as interesting as some others. But that's what I was talking about with right. The Master, where there's a lot of room to grow because I really like a lot of the characterization. I like certain dynamics that I've continued to think about since I saw it. And so I think that there's room to grow and appreciate some of the formlessness that's going on here. And that's something else that I want to touch on is that for everything that I've said, Paul Thomas Anderson is no stranger to formless writing. I love Inherent Vice, wacky script. I love The Master, wacky (laughs) script. It's something that he is really good at doing. And I think that just to quickly compare to those two, especially Inherent Vice, to which I think this is quite similar. It's got that same kind of smoky, hazy Los Angeles in the 70s type of vibe to it. The biggest differences between these two is one, I think Inherent Vice is funnier. It makes me laugh more, but I've also seen it more times. So grain of salt. And two, I think that it's a far more elusive and mysterious and weird movie than Licorice Pizza, which is a little bit more grounded as like a romantic comedy type of movie. And that choice does not necessarily synergize with the formless writing in the same way that I feel that The Master and Inherent Vice do. Very well put. I really love the comedy in Inherent Vice, and I think rewatching it emphasized it a lot more recently for me. I don't know if this is necessarily funnier, but I remember laughing probably more. If I, if I can dig into this a little bit, what did you find particularly funny in this movie? Are there any scenes or... I'm going to make this hard. Don't say Bradley Cooper. Do not say Bradley Cooper. <laughs> Anything but him. Because <laughs> he's absolutely hilarious. I think that he's yeah. easily might like the MVP of this film. There's a particular moment, kind of referencing back to the really beautiful cinematography and the way that light looks when it comes through things. There's a particular moment after some shenanigans where <laughs> Bradley Cooper appears over the top of oh. the hill. He crests over it. And the way that you can tell is because light is shining through his white shirt and his yeah. billowing sleeves. And he's just kind of like walking like Vince McMahon up to like a WWE stage. <laughs> he is hamming it up the entire time in a glorious way. But sorry, back to the question. Sans Bradley Cooper... I have to say it's probably the scene with Harriet Sansom Harris when Alana Haim is doing her like sort of not audition, but he's meeting or she's meeting with the agent that Cooper has. And it's just like, you know, you remind me of a dog. (laughs) Her lip is quivering ever so slightly. And she's been instructed at that moment (sighs) by Cooper Hoffman to say yes to everything that she's asked to everything. Which kind of culminates in like, can you can you ride horses? Can you shoot archery? This is a huge part of the character. She needs to shoot arrow. Yeah. She needs to shoot a bow and arrow from horseback. And she has never done that before. I, I like then, Sean Penn's little character there. It's kind of a yeah. this is sort of a weird comparison, but it's got a little bit of a Mulholland Drive thing happening there. Uh, have you seen Mulholland Drive? Yeah, I've seen it. We covered that it on the scene. on the other film guys a while ago. Ooh, okay. We'll have to tune into that. But it reminds me of that audition scene where you have that really one thing that's really been remarked upon with this film is the age dynamic between Cooper Hoffman and Alana Haim. Really, the movie centers in a very large way around Alana's character reconciling with her complex emotions about 
the way that she feels about this person that she doesn't feel like she should be in a relationship with. And a lot of that loose plot follows her mostly vain attempts to find and court other men and be an adult. And one way that that manifests is with that Sean Penn character, who's like an older man. And there's just (laughs) there the showdown (laughs) scene that happens where Cooper Hoffman's like getting competitive. I, I could buy everybody at this table martinis. Like, oh, you want me to do it? I can do it. <laughs> I can get you guys martinis. We can, if you want, do you want martinis? I can get you martinis. I don't. I don't think that it was necessarily like uh, even about him like being able to buy it. I think it was mainly just like, hey, I know we're underage, but I can totally get us martinis, guys. <laughs> I like, I can totally do it. I know that I know the owner. Cooper Hoffman's great in this. I hope that we get He's to see inc- a lot more I, of yeah. him in the future. He's incredible. Um, I. I I remember watching, I was like, he is just like, he has so much of the, uh, of the mannerisms that Philip Seymour Hoffman used to have. Did you and happen to watch the many saints of Newark this year? The I did. Sopranos yeah. prequel film, similar energy, right? I think I, I like this so. performance more, but it just, when I look at them, it's like, wow, obviously with the many saints of Newark, um, Gandolfini's son is playing Tony Soprano. Whereas here, this character is not, a Philip Seymour no. Hoffman character by any means, but in his, it's in his face and like in his kind of like, I don't know the way that he'll shuffle. I watched Boogie Nights pretty closely after this, which Philip Seymour Hoffman has a brief but extremely memorable turn in that film. Yes. And it's just, it's striking how they're the same in so many ways. I want to rewatch Heart 8 and see if there's any similarities mm. there as well. I have a few friends that have been rewatching Heart Eight. We need a Blu-ray of that here in Regional I, Criterion. I, know, I, I recently tried to get it, and it's not available in uh, like we're in Region A for Blu-rays, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yes, they only have Blu-rays. Region B. Cooper Hoffman, I really love. Alana Heim, I think I was a little bit more mixed on, and that's something to kind of revisit on later rewatches to see how she hits me. I was a little bit skeptical okay. of her, and then I liked her. I thought that she was fine. How did you feel about? Was this her acting debut? Has she been in any yeah, films she's, before this? Uh, she's only been in like music, the music videos that PTA has directed. Um, so gotcha. no acting per se. She actually also did not know how to drive stick or drive backwards in this movie, but <laughs> handled pretty well. That scene and the Bradley Cooper coming over the hill that I've already described, those two scenes got by far the biggest reaction of anything happening in the film. I mean, I know that myself. I mean, I was like during, especially during the, uh, when they were going backwards, I was like gripping the edges of my seat. (laughs) My, My favorite part of that is that there's an insert shot where you see all of Cooper's friends in the back of the van that are just like, they don't have... They don't even know what they have no idea what's going on. They're like, it's literally dark in the back of the van. It's just a great, and it just lasts like one second. You just see them in the background, like, oh, yeah, great. Those are two of the most memorable, like, funny moments. As far as like what I thought of Alana, I think she did a pretty like good job for not having any acting experience. For the short bit that they were in the movie, the rest of the Heim family did as well. The dad has a nice, like, small little role. Is are those their real parents? Are those the Heim parents as well? Okay, I knew one of the one of the more comedic scenes that actor he's in the movie book smart you may know his name he's kind of briefly in the movie as like a um, rival or something i think he gets invited over to the heim family passover dinner yeah <laughs> and there's a great little detail where the heim sisters like sing a prayer and i really it's such a great just the, that you would have all three of them sing that is just a great little detail oh yeah his name is skylar gizondo he was in book smart I, I got to go to a that was the first movie that i ever had like one of those like special preview screenings for made me feel all cool and special yeah 
there you go. Nice connection. I really like him in this. He's not in it very long. And that's he's not sort yet. of the nature of the film is that if there's a character that you really like in it, they're not really in too much of it because it's just kind of shuffling this card deck yeah. all around. I mean, Cooper the Hoffman biggest one in that that isn't in this that much, but does show up is John C. Riley. Remind me where he appears at the uh, like the teen convention at the very, very beginning. Not at the beginning, but when he goes, when he, after he finds out about the waterbed, before he gets arrested. I don't remember John C. Riley. I remember a, it's the a waterbed. Blink and, it's a blink and miss it. Like you can't yeah, even okay. really see that it's him, but you hear his voice. Look, I'm gonna raise this a half star just because John C. Riley's in a cameo <laughs> that I didn't detect the first. He plays a uh, Herman Munster, Mr. Munster. Interesting. Okay, cool. Mary Elizabeth Ellis also is in this. She plays Cooper's mom. And she's not in it for maybe like a, a couple minutes. So it's another one of those like roles that you kind of see in the trailer and you're like, oh, I wonder what she's going to be doing in this movie. And it's like, ah. yeah, it's not. I think that is something when we talk about the script of this film, when you compare it to Boogie Nights or if you compare it to Magnolia, it's not as expansive as those movies in terms of its ensemble. It's more so interested in using those characters within its ensemble to flesh out its world. And it really stays quite focused on Cooper and Alana's non-relationship and their evolving dynamic and the way that that dynamic makes them each feel and the things that they do because of the way that they feel about the dynamic. In a sense, it's almost like all these different scenarios have been broken down so that it can give you the cleanest A to B as if trying to mimic the shots of them each running towards each other which are edited together in a really beautiful way. Whenever I see a shot of somebody running across a horizon like that, I think of Joaquin Phoenix and the master. So to have them kind of echoed here, it's like, oh yeah, I see Definitely. Yeah, what I appreciate about maybe like the style of this movie, you know, above like some of like the content, I guess, or the contents of the film, not content, because I don't like referring to films as content these days, is it's it's a blend between like his roots in like ensemble filmmaking where you're following a lot of different characters into like his later films where you're really set into this one story. It's like a nice in-between, I felt, uh, where it's covering, you know, the expansive ground. It has all these great characters and character actors and all that stuff that you get from a great ensemble PTA movie, as well as that focus on these two characters, their relationships with each other and themselves and the world around them. So I think that when it comes to Paul Thomas Anderson, one of the most notable things, almost regardless of which movie you're talking about, is the use of music. And that includes score work, whether by John Brion or Johnny Greenwood, who both have done excellent score work in the past. This score is by Johnny Greenwood, but it's not as emphasized. because right. I, th- like I think he only other- has like one, one track of score. This movie is quite like Boogie Nights, more defined by the use of licensed music. Was there anything that stood out to you on the soundtrack? Yeah, I really loved... Stumbling in, Chris Norman and Susie Quattro plays pretty early on in the movie, as as I remember. And then you know you got Sonny and Cher. You have the the song from the trailer, "Life on Mars" by David Bowie, which I didn't know about that song before this movie had existed. So I appreciate it very much for that. A lot of the songs I thought fit really well into the time period. Although if you're someone who gets technical about, well, this song wasn't out. If you pay attention, there's there's songs that came after this set, but I think PTA even said like he was like, yeah, I just hope people don't really <laughs> let that affect their movie going experience because I don't give a shit. PTA gives Chad answers to interviews, and this is not to at anybody else. I just love his <laughs> response recently about 
Spider-Man, he's, I, you know, he just has like a complete dad attitude. He's like, ah, it's a Spider-Man movie. It's probably going to get people to go to movie theaters and make money. So yeah. cool to me. <laughs> <laughs> Which I uh, dig. I'm, you know, I like yeah. that there's kind of no real pretense with that. I love, you know, I love the really fastidious Tarantino once upon a time in Hollywood type needle drops too. But I, there was nothing that ever stood out. It all kind of fits within yeah. the era and sensibility. And I want to say that to me, when I think about what this movie feels like, it's almost nostalgic in the way that some of the things that we've compared, Dazed and Confused, American Graffiti, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood are all quite nostalgic. And that's reflected in the fact that it's a period film. But it very much to me feels like someone looking back and exploring this arc of a relationship through the lens of memory, through the lens of looking backwards. And <laughs> obviously PTA just picked songs that he liked because he thought they were cool. But yeah. insofar <laughs> as you wanted to like defend against the choice, what you would say is this, that the movie is not meant to be grounded reality. And that's reflected in the fact that it's got this structure that doesn't really care about telling you one continuous story. Everything just kind of melts into the next scene, into the next scene, into the next scene, in the same way that your memories all kind of melt together. And what that combines with, with the cinematography and the music and the characters is this sense of like being hurtled back, not into a film made in the 70s, but a movie that recaptures what the 70s were, which is a distinctly different thing and a really unique form. Well, I wouldn't call it unique necessarily, but it is a uniquely modern form, the throwback picture, which is what that American graffiti, you know, that's a 70s film looking back at the 50s. Dazed and Confused, that's a 90s film looking back at the 70s. You know, those types of period movies about coming of age in the decade when a director was born are always going to be appealing because you can make them so personal. And yet the details of them can feel really universal. I imagine that's true for anybody that's ever lived in Encino or LA. They watch this movie and go, wow, yeah, that's my hometown. Because that's, yeah. I mean, at least from somebody that's never lived in those places, but has been to those places. I mean, making an LA movie look like LA isn't necessarily the craziest thing in the world, but a lot of the technique here really makes it feel like someone's particular hazy childhood memory of LA. And I like that a lot. It definitely, I think, captures the area nicely and stuff like Fat Bernie's Pinball Palace. That was an actual place that was open when pinball became legal again. I have, I have a question for you. Tells it. Have you ever sure. had a waterbed? I have not had one, but I have used one. Are you horrible experience? <laughs> Look, it's the most innovative sleep technology there is. You just haven't opened your mind. I, it's one of the funniest <laughs> parts of this movie to me is that the main crux, we already talked about Cooper Hoffman's character being a hustler. His kind of main hustle, the the biggest one that happens in the movie is this like waterbed scheme that they come up with. Yeah. And I love that. I love the usage of the waterbeds because one great period thing, like it just immediately dates the film that people are buying waterbeds and selling waterbeds and then pinballs getting legalized. As you said, that really dates the film as well. Yeah. But also that he goes full tilt on something that from any modern consciousness, you're like, that's a terrible product no one will want this in more than one year, right? Like that there is this kind of ambition that suits a, a man, an adult, and <laughs> like a foresight that really tells you this is a 15-year-old. Yeah, I think that's like really shown in the scene where him and Alana are at like a diner or whatever, and she's watching the news about the oil crisis. And she's yeah. like, 
what do you think vinyl is made out of? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I thought it was rubber. What do you think rubber is made out of? <laughs> There's a great piece of imagery when right after that scene, the oil crisis is going on, not the OPEC crisis. I was actually mistaken about this. I was thinking it was OPEC. And then they, they say that the president is Nixon. So it's not OPEC. It's an earlier oil crisis than that. Right. This either that's early incorrect- 70s where that was, that was, I think, late 70s. So that's either a flubbed detail or there was another oil crisis, which is not remotely outside of the realm of possibility. My knowledge of 70s California history is limited enough that I simply don't care. Right. <laughs> but what I will say <laughs> is that there's this great bit of imagery where the oil crisis has happened. People are running out of fuel and their cars are stopped in the middle of the road and you see the kids running in between the cars. And I think that's a really great moment because if you have any sort of understanding of what the oil crisis represents, which is in part, basically it's a show of solidarity with the state of Palestine regarding Israel is what sets that all into motion. And so there are these huge geopolitical implications which are still very much alive today. And when we think about oil, the price of gasoline, the environment, you know, there's all these different things that kind of intersect that are big issues. And there's a power to me in seeing young people run through what is the consequence of that car stopped in the middle of the road, carefree. Who cares about that, man? You know, just live your life, go have fun. Yeah. And that's not to say that you should tune the world out necessarily, but there's a, there's a kind of power in saying that even if one type of world, the modern world, cars, gasoline industry falls apart, you will still be here and your memories will still matter. And the connections you make with people will still mean things to you. And there, you know, I don't think that that's a huge part of the movie, but it is reflected, as you say, they're having the conversation about the oil crisis. And, you know, so it does come up here and there set against this story about finding love in unlikely places, which I think is very sweet. I had thought, I think it was really just going to go back into not really caring about accuracy of timeframes. Cause like, as you were saying, like uh, the, the oil crisis, um, there, there could have been one in the early seventies. It could have just been flubbed or it could have just been added because, you know, Paul Thompson Anderson, he was born in the seventies and he remembers the gas crisis and he just wants to have that in the movie, but doesn't want it set at that time. It's stuff like that, that I think really only matters if you're going to be picking for details, which is a really fun way to watch a movie for something that isn't historical. I was going to say, I think there are types of films. I think of David Fincher's Zodiac and a movie that inspired that one a lot, All the President's Men, where the historical details of those movies are incredibly impressive. And they're important to the personality of the films because of what those films are about, which is investigative journalists and detectives, people trying to be thorough and use their attention to detail to solve problems. And therefore, getting the history of those movies right is really important to establishing those types of characters and their professional competency. In this film, it's about people hanging out. So who gives a shit? It's more about just setting the general vibe of the 70s rather than a specific time frame in the 70s. I think there's a particular scene with Cooper Hoffman and his mom where she's writing a press release for the owner of a Japanese restaurant. And the owner of the Japanese restaurant doesn't speak Japanese. He does this kind of garish voice every time he talks. 
And there's this yeah. great little bit in that scene where you get this insert shot of Cooper Hoffman reacting to it. And he's not saying anything because this is his mom's customer. You know, you see all that kind of internal. But when I see that insert shot, I am reminded of the thing that I was expressing earlier that it feels like someone telling you a story about their childhood. Yeah, this one time I was in my mom's office and you wouldn't believe it, man. There was this guy. He said he used to have a restaurant in Tokyo and he had a Japanese wife. And whenever he would talk to her, he would just bark at her. You know, it feels like a story that someone's telling you after the fact. And so all the details kind of like kaleidoscoping into one stretch of time just feels emblematic of what it's like to tell a story that's 50 years old. That makes so much sense viewing it in the angle of, yeah, this is like a story that, you know, the older Cooper Hoffman is like maybe telling his kids or his grandkids. Let me tell you about the girl I was going to marry. Yeah. And then like at the very end of it, he's like, yeah. And then she dumped me and I married your mom. Right. (laughs) It's almost how you would expect that to end. That is, I haven't thought about it like that. And I think that maybe has improved my experience already so far. (laughs) Yeah. It's a movie that I actually am quite quite eager to see again. I think I'm going to- I think what I'm going to do because I've got these other screenings of PTA movies is once I've gone through all of them, I think I will revisit this because it will still be playing in theaters when that's done. And I think that I'm really curious to see if I feel about the same, if I, if my feelings have improved, you know, just to, just to find out it was when you went to your preview screening, what was that auditorium? Like, did you have a pretty good crowd? It was packed. It was mine was as well lots and lots of like laughing and like sort of like audience uh, interaction, the most that you could have for something that isn't Spider-Man, I think. The most consistent audience look that I've had all year. Maybe the only other closer one would have been Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. As a note, Paul Thomas Anderson and David Lynch fans, you have a look we can spot you. If you're walking into the mall <laughs> to go see Paul Thomas Anderson's licorice pizza on a sneak peek, I can clock you from a mile away. You. Yep. <laughs> there's I saw so many um, pieces of a 24 merch at the screening as well. Oh, nice. Um, hats and shirts galore. Or do you have anything that you're looking forward to? It's called. Oh yeah. Um, Tragedy Macbeth. I'm seeing, uh, I'm seeing matrix. It probably will have, come out already by the time this episode comes out those are the two movies that i'm planning to see theatrically before the year ends i've pretty much seen everything that i want to see what give me a really quick top three of the year for you nine days is my number one so far number two right now is drive my car and number three is this licorice pizza you want to do a little bit of drive my car just real quick just Uh, for fun just to say we? we did it yes can we so I went I'd to see, to. I went to see this film predominantly upon the recommendation of Cole, who I just we just did the Jackie podcast together. Yeah, he five starred it. It's his favorite film of the year. In his review, he called it the best cinematic achievement since Moonlight. And I went, okay, <laughs> what does that mean? And so I went to go see it. All I knew about it, I've never seen a Hamaguchi film before. All I knew about it was that it was based on a Murakami story that I'd never read. Um, Murakami is a Japanese author. Yeah. You may be familiar with him through the film Burning, which is also an adaptation of his work, the 2018 yes. Li Chang with film uh, Stephen Yoon. Stephen Yoon. Amazing, amazing movie. So I went to see this with pretty minimal expectations in a theater. Did you get to see it in a theater or did you see no, this? No, I, I got a screener. Gotcha. Okay. Holy shit. <laughs> 
I mean, it's my favorite screenplay since Phantom Threat, which we've already talked about. Yeah. An incredible film. So much so yes. that I don't want to impede upon anybody else's ability to go into it as dry as I did. What I will tell you is that in 10 minutes of this movie, you get more than most movies have in their entire runtimes in terms of not just character dynamics, but constantly evolving character dynamics, exploring the nature of performance within human behavior. And it's mind-bogglingly brilliant. So much so that I like, cannot wait to watch Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which is another Hamaguchi movie that released this year. Um, What was your experience with Drive My Car? What did you know about it going in? Anything? Uh, All I knew was that it had a Saab car, which... Yes. Um, oh, what a cool car. Oh, it's such a cool car. I spent like probably 30 minutes after the car was over just like pretending about being like, yeah, I'm going to try and find one of these that I can buy and I'm going to, you know, find that Saab 900 and go forth. But uh, it's a it's a really awesome car in, in a really understated way. It was it was essentially like classified as like the Tesla of its time, even though it's not an electric car doesn't break any boundaries. It was designed by Saab was a Swedish airplane manufacturer. And then they started to get into cars. So unimportant tangent aside, (laughs) (laughs) um, I really love the movie. Hitotoshi Nishijima was incredible in his performance. I would say my favorite male performance of the year. Um, I I think it is definitely among the top there. Um, I've only ever seen him in creepy uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa flick. Just watched that Pretty for good the movie. first time this year. Yeah, good, solid. Not the best Kyoshi Kurosawa on the block, but no, it's well not. acted, well made. This is, uh, yeah. his performance in this is breathtaking and layered. He plays a stage actor. And I love movies about acting because it's such a flex. <laughs> you have to be so, <laughs> you have to be such a good director to make a movie about acting really sing. And I would argue that this does. Because again, the movie is really a lot about performance and it's about the different layers of performance that this main character has depending on the given scenario in his life and watching the actor go through all of these different scenes and emotions. If you're watching closely, you can just see the entire story unfurl across his face. And it's a three hour film where it is compelling in every single moment. And it builds to not only my favorite ending of the year, but my favorite ending of the last few years because of how it is sequenced that moment and what it means once you get there. Of course, we won't spoil that for you, but it's a movie that I cannot recommend enough. Yeah, this is a three-hour movie, but like a lot of the three-hour movies, I think recently at least, I think this handled it really well. It was very well-paced. I loved that. Performances, like you said, you know, are great, especially from um, the main actor. I really impressed me. Uh, I don't want to give too much away with the movie because I want people to be able to go into it blind, like sort of like we did. Um but I will say, yeah, again, it's it's my number two of the year. I don't see that changing with, with what I have left, but we'll see, I guess. I imagine that's going to end up very high on both of our year-end lists. Zach, thanks for coming on and talking to me about Licorice Pizza and a little bit about Drive My Car. Do you want to tell everyone where they can find you? Absolutely. So I am on Twitter and Instagram at livinmediocre. I don't really use Instagram that much, but if you want to, I'm there. Um, and then, of course, I have my podcast, Other Film Guys, with my guy, Justin and you know we're back at it right now he's off of school so we're recording our episodes on pta right now so our our episode of licorice pizza will be coming out uh at the end of this year on new year's eve and then we're gonna get into our like our 
favorites of the year. So stay tuned. We also have reviews on our website, theotherfilmguys.com. I want to thank Zach once again for coming and joining me to discuss Licorice Pizza. Please do go ahead and check out his channel over on the Other Film Guys podcast available on Spotify and Apple. And thank you all for listening. We hope to talk with you again soon.